In a world where a man loves movies and loves lists and keeps a list of his 100 favorite movies for over 30 years, what if he made his wife watch those movies in order? And what if he made her talk about it on a podcast? Would she like them? Would she hate them? Can this marriage possibly survive this podcast? Find out what will happen in a world called Craig's List. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode five of Craig's List, number 96, Dog Day Afternoon. Woo-woo! Carla, this is one of your top ten movies. Yes. If not, like, my number. But, okay. So, I think on the number zero episode, I explained that I think of movies, my favorite movies in two ways. Like my favorite movies are movies that I think I could watch again and again and again. And then also movies that I think are really well made. Okay. And this happens to be. Covers both of those bases for you. Yeah. It falls in both of those categories. So it might be, I mean, when Harry met Sally is still my favorite movie because I can watch it a million times and never get sick of it. But this, this is pretty close to a number one for me. Yeah, this uh, I have probably seen it four times now, and uh, I'm more impressed by it every time I see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will agree that number 96 is probably too low. I think I'll move it up uh, a little <gasps> to bit. To number one? Not to number one, but uh, <laughs> I Please? did I did enjoy it a lot. Uh, I do think it has a flaw that I will cover later, which is probably oh. preventing it from being as high as it would be on your list. I don't think I ha- – I, I I was thinking about this more so than I thought about any other movie we've watched so far. Uh-huh. And I can't find any flaws in this movie. Wow. Because you want to be any. prepared to defend your choices, right? Yes. Yeah, because we're going toe-to-toe here. Yeah, I can't think of any flaws in this film. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll get into that uh, a little bit. Okay. This movie came out in 1975. So I was negative five years old. <laughs> That's right. Uh, you said something very similar that I'll cover in Carla's quotes. Did I? Uh, later. <laughs> And it's about a real-life bank robbery that happened in 1972 in Brooklyn. Okay. And uh, it stars Al Pacino at his best. By far at his best. I think his best performance and maybe one of the top ten performances of all time. It's an amazing performance. And I am not a a big Al Pacino fan. And this performance is tops in my book. If I had a sticker book, I would put all the stickers on this page. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> An Al Pacino sticker book? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm willing to bet that somewhere out there, there's an Al Pacino sticker book. I mean, there should be. Right? <laughs> that didn't make yeah. any sense. <laughs> put, put Serpico's head on Scarface's bottom. I was just thinking of all the gold stars I would give it and how those would be stickers <laughs> in my world. Okay. Well, I, I would love it if you made an Al Pacino sticker book. Uh <laughs> If nothing else comes out of this podcast, uh, that that could be some good that could happen. Uh, he's supported by the fantastic John Cazale. Yes, uh, I love that guy. Who left us too soon, died in ni- sure, 1980, Z. and a uh, frequent collaborator with Mr. Pacino. Do you think he would have been as big a deal as Pacino if he had been able to live? Well, I think he was just a quintessential character actor. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't think he would have been the lead in many movies. Uh, every movie that he was ever in was nominated for Best Picture. Which is amazing. Uh, which is uh, Godfather, Godfather 2, The Conversation. And The Deer Hunter. Dog Day Afternoon and The Deer Hunter. I love The Deer Hunter. I know you love The Deer Hunter. I don't know that I've ever seen The Conversation. What's that? Well, you'll be seeing it. Spoilers don't ahead later on the list. But who's in that? Uh, Gene Hackman. This is the one that I think of that's The French Connection. Yeah, they were both Gene Hackman movies, uh, three years apart in the seventies. So I saw the conversation. This is that's the one where they, um, it's like listening to people's, con- like they're recording people's conversations. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So <laughs> four, four of the five movies that John Cazale made are on my top one hundred. I can't believe the Deer Hunter is not on your top one hundred. Yeah, it's all right. It's an amazing movie. Yeah. I love that movie. Yeah, maybe I'll watch it again. You're it's crazy. Long. It is long. long, but it's so moving. It's really like when I think about scenes from that film, my stomach hurts. Okay, I, what scene in particular makes your stomach hurt? The scene where uh, De Niro comes back from the war, 
and he's with Meryl Streep and Meryl had been dating Christopher Walken, but you knew that De Niro always had a, a crush on her. Okay. And then they, they see each other for the first time after the war and like neither of them know what happened to Christopher Walken's character. Hmm. And it's just so moving and sad. I don't remember that at all, but, uh, it's well, been, then they end up hooking up. It's been years since I've seen it. You are the world's biggest Meryl Streep fan. I don't think I'm the world's biggest. Top 10? You're one of the 10 biggest Meryl fans? I love fans? Meryl Streep. <laughs> but I can't watch all of her movies anymore. Like, I waited a long time to watch the, what was the one with where she was a rock star that came out recently? Oh, yeah. Uh, Ricky and the Flash? Yeah. I did not go see that in the theater. And then I couldn't sleep one night and I watched it at like two o'clock in the morning and it ruined the rest of my night's sleep. Really? It's so bad. Oh no. But I love her. Yeah. I don't think there's a single Meryl Streep movie in my top 100. So. Are you kidding? We won't be talking about her at all. I can't believe Defending Your Life isn't in your top 100. Oh, that's a good one. I like that movie a lot. That's fantastic. I just watched that twice recently because Netflix recently took it off and I wanted to get it in two more times before it left. You, you own the DVD. I know. <laughs> <laughs> you can watch it every day if you wanted but to. But Netflix is so easy. <laughs> you don't have to open anything. Right. Uh, all of that time-consuming opening a drawer, <laughs> putting a disc in a drawer, closing the drawer. Yeah. Waiting for the menu to load. Plus, I can watch it on my computer. I don't have a DVD player on my computer. Yeah. I mean, we can get into the real specifics of why I watched it on Netflix, <laughs> but that is taking away from Dog Day at Afternoon Time. Okay. I think we're still in a John Cazal tangent now because <laughs> we're talking about Dog Day Afternoon. Mm-hmm. Uh, Charles Durning is in it. Wonderful actor. Who I thought was Brian Dennehy. Uh, yeah. You're spoiling Carla's quotes. Oh, God. I'm sorry. <laughs> Um, if I'm aware of Carla's quotes though, then they don't make, then they're not fun. So it's okay that I spoil them. <laughs> okay. You will only want to hear the things, uh, that you don't remember saying. Well, no, I'm just saying like, if I'm so aware of what you've written down when we're watching it, then that kind of takes the fun out of it. Okay. So if I don't know, that's better. <laughs> don't you think? Yeah. Were you conscious of me quoting you this time? Knowing, uh, knowing this is a sequence? No, I can't tell when you're playing crossword puzzles or when you're like taking notes on your iPad. I, I'm constantly taking notes on my iPad while I do the movie and I'm, I'm not doing crossword puzzles. Okay. I occasionally will make a Scrabble move. Okay. That's what I meant. Okay. I meant Scrabble. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're definitely, I've seen you play Scrabble when you're watching these things. Yeah. You know, because I'm in a, uh, a hot match with either Ben Acker or Martha Kikowski, my mother. <laughs> Those are the two people I play on Scrabble online. Uh, Acker kicks my ass. My mother and I are pretty even. And, uh, yeah, sometimes I gotta make a move. But other than that, I'm paying rapt attention to the movie. Okay. Uh, who else is in this movie, Carla? Carol Kane. Carol Kane. A young Carol Kane is in it. A sweetheart. She's such a sweetie She pie. sure is. What uh, a cutie. James Broderick, who is Matthew Broderick's oh, dad, yeah. plays the FBI guy. Mm-hmm. Lance Henriksen. Chris Sarandon. Chris Sarandon plays Leon, uh, the male lover uh, and transsexual uh, of the movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think Sidney Lumet casts his movies so well, um, casts all of his movies so well. There's a, be a couple other Lumet movies that we'll be covering on Craigslist. And every face in this movie is so memorable. And, uh, the, the couple other movies that are there, it's very important that every minor part be important too, mm-hmm. uh, just like it is in this movie. And I feel like the bank manager is great. The lead teller is great. Um, all of the tellers, even when they don't have that many lines, they're, they're memorable. You know, they stick out as individuals. All the cops and FBI and, uh, the limo driver at the end, like, uh, all of these are very memorable actors and a, a lot of thought was put into casting. Well, I agree with you. I also, because I watched some of the behind the scenes footage, found out that Al Pacino cast several of the parts with his friends. Right. Penelope Allen, who plays the uh, teller, uh, has not been in nearly enough movies. She's still alive. She's only uh, has 30 credits on IMDb. She's still working, though. I did look her up, too. She's still working. Wonderful actor. And I guess she was like a surrogate mother to Pacino, where he lived with her and her husband for a while in New York when he was a young actor. And so he went out of his way to uh, to help her out and get her a part in this movie. And John Cazale, he pushed for 
Yeah, they had acted together in the Indian Once the Bronx. Uh, we ever read that play or yeah. seen it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, we used to do scenes from it in acting class in college all the time. Uh, by Israel Horowitz, mm-hmm. father of Adam Horowitz of the Beastie Boys. Also wrote The Line. Did you know I, that? I'm not familiar with The Line. Mm, well, you should look it up. <laughs> I know something Craig doesn't know. <laughs> All right. So you know an Israel Horowitz play. Congratulations. <laughs> uh, but Pacino and Cazal were off-Broadway together as young actors in The Indian Wants the Bronx in probably 1967. And Cazal, uh, I guess, was not right for this part. Uh, the actual Sal, the accomplice to the bank robbery, was uh, 18 years old, I think. Mm. And Lumet did not want to cast uh, John Cazal and Pacino pushed for him. And then Cazal came in and read and Lumet was like, okay, yeah, we got to cast this guy. Because uh, he's amazing. He's amazing. And, you know, he doesn't talk that much, but he does so much mm-hmm. with just facial expressions. And Sal is so deadpan and when he have has those explosions you know you really feel like this guy could be a psycho you know like he 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 feels dangerous the first half hour of this movie is so funny it is really funny i was actually when we were watching it i was thinking i'm going to start showing it in some of my improv classes that i'm teaching one of my favorite exercises that i teach in improv class is called things get worse Uh which is basically you start the scene with a problem you've got a nosebleed uh your car is out of gas uh you're trying to move a heavy couch and can't get it through a door and then it's the improviser's jobs to progressively make things worse over the course of the scene Mm -hmm. because in comedy we're not in the problem solving job we're we're in the problem we're not in the problem solving job (laughs) we're not in the problem solving business we're in the problem heightening business. Right. That's what we do. So it's our job to make things worse. You know, if you solve problems, the scene ends. Uh, so the first uh, half hour of this movie is just classic things get worse. Uh-huh. Everything that could go wrong for these bank robbers could. It's it's really incredible how quickly things go south and how they're able to sustain the things get worse <laughs> yeah. for as long as they do. And it's really an excellent lis- uh, lesson, p- improvisers listening out there. I'm sure there's some. And heightening, really, truly, like how – what's the next craziest thing that could happen? Right. Uh, but what balances out it out so well the whole time is uh, Pacino. You know, like as things are happening, you really you you see him struggling, but him making the choice to continue to try. He's gonna forge ahead. Yeah, yeah he could have bailed and gotten he out of this. Could have totally so, bailed so, so many easily. times. Yeah, but he is committed to doing this. <laughs> First, they have a third accomplice who yes. chickens out and runs out, and he try and. Which is one of the funniest parts in the movie. And it's within the first five minutes of the film. Yeah. The three of them walk in and the third guy is like, as they're pulling out their guns, he's like, I can't do this. And he goes to leave. And then he tries to take the car. And Pacino's like, hey, you can't take the car. <laughs> how, are, how are we getting out of here? <laughs> it's like, well, how am I going to get home? <laughs> take, like, the train. take the train. Take the train. So funny. It's like, and you immediately get on Pacino's side because, because it just goes so badly for him right away. Like he's the classic underdog in this, in, in the first few minutes. When Sonny tries to take out his gun, it's in like a long flower box. Yeah. Uh, Sonny is Pacino's character. Sonny is Pacino's character. And, and th- this really happened, I guess, where the bow of the box caught on the gun during the <sighs> first take where they try to get it out and Pacino had to shake off the box and everything. And it's so funny that it's they just so left funny. it in. Exactly. They left it in as the mistake. Yeah. Cause it's the, it's the exact, it would, it's exactly what would happen if I tried to rob a bank. <laughs> like I would try to take out the gun and it wouldn't come out smoothly right away. And I'd have to spend 20 seconds fixing it. Why would you try to rob a bank? Oh, well. To pay for my sex change operation? Yes, exactly. Okay. Uh, spoiler to the film. <laughs> um, then they get in the vault and there's the, the, uh, the money is already gone from the vault. So there's only like a thousand bucks in there. They were expecting a lot more. Yes. Well, wait, let's talk this through real quick because this is so great. And I did, I've never taken notes this whole time on any movie and I took notes on this movie. Wow. Okay. 
What so do you I'm got? I'm serious for real this time, you guys. Okay. This is a really good movie. No joke. Okay. <laughs> Carla's not clowning around I'm this not, time, guys. I'm not clowning around. So the first thing is that the third guy's like, I can't. I can't do this. Great. He leaves. Then he goes around. Pacino goes around and starts trying to black out the TV, the the cameras that are taping them. And he's just mumbling to himself the whole time uh, as he's like fumbling with the spray paint. Yes. <laughs> moving right along. Moving right along. He just keeps saying that like he's trying to assure himself out loud that this is this is part of the plan. Then they get to the vault and there's no money. The money, the, the, the vans came earlier that day to take all the money. Right. And he just goes, Oh, this is too much. This is too much. <laughs> so funny. Uh, then he says, uh, Oh yeah. He, he curses at the manager and, and the, the bank lady is like, you could watch your language. And instead <laughs> of being like, fuck you, I have a gun. He goes, well, I speak what I feel. <laughs> I speak what I feel. All right. I speak what I feel. <laughs> it's so brilliant because it's like he's doing this violent, horrible thing, and yet he just is so relatable the whole time. I guess Lumet was not big on improvisation normally, but he did a couple weeks of rehearsals with the cast to rewrite the script and make it comfortable in their own words. So I guess a lot of the words in the final movie are stuff that the cast improvised during rehearsal. Yeah. And there are a couple moments of actual pure improvisation on camera as well. Um, Wyoming, I think, was one of those. Yeah. Would John Cazale improvise Wyoming as where Sal would want to go? What country Sal would want to go yeah, to? Yeah, Sonny's like, what, what country do you want to go to, Sal? And there's the perfect beat where he just sits there for a second and thinks, and then he says, Wyoming. <laughs> and like Pacino doesn't even laugh, which I thought was so brilliant. Yeah. Like he's just like, oh, oh that's not a country, Sal. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so then, uh, he decides to burn the register. He starts a fire. <laughs> and the fire is really what gets them caught because yes. you can see the smoke blowing out and then uh, a guy from across the street notices right. it. Right. So that's the next heightening move is the, the, well, then the guard has asthma and he starts to yes. have an asthma attack. Then the insurance guy across the street sees he comes over. They have to send him away. Then the ladies have to go to the bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, who's got to go to the bathroom? Yeah. Uh, one at a time, one at a time. Then they go into the bathroom and he opens the door and there's a woman just hanging out in she's there putting on there. makeup. She doesn't even know a bank yes, robbery is happening. On her break. It's so great. It's so funny. Uh, and then as, as they lead, lead her away, the other woman who works there says, Oh, we're having a bank robbery. Like it's like the most <laughs> normal thing. Um, yeah. So all of those things happen and then the phone starts to ring. And the manager picks it up and he's like, it's for you. And your heart just drops because yeah. all this time you're kind of hoping that they'll get away with it. Yeah. And I think you said like no matter how, how many times I see this, I still think they might get away with it. Yeah. You, know? you want them to right away. It's so great to like see a movie where it's not that these people are bad and it's not that they're good. It's not black and white. It's like it's it's every level of realism because they're doing this – crazy thing but you can't help but root for them and there's so many like layers of complication going on here uh because it's not cops versus robbers it's uh Cops versus robbers versus FBI versus media versus the crowd versus the bank employees versus the families of the robbers versus the gay rights movement. Yes, like, yes. All of these factions mm -hmm. are right there uh, on a New York street on a hot day uh, and playing against each other in different ways, you know, and, and the movie does such a good job of juggling all those different factions mm -hmm. and you kind of, you believe uh, and sympathize with everyone to a certain extent. Yeah. You know? Uh, I think Lumet also does a really great job of the element of suspense. You know, in the most suspenseful moments when things are getting really, really serious, he finds some way to top it. So for example, when Kazal is saying to Pacino, Hey, you said that we were going to kill ourselves. If, if we didn't make it out of here, you promised me that. Yeah. And but you can tell Pacino doesn't want to die. <laughs> and so they have this really serious conversation and it's, uh, and then it's left with the phone, the phone starts to ring. And so it like scares you yeah. for a second. He picks it up and it's this creeper just being like, Hey, what are you doing with those ladies in there? <laughs> <laughs> and it's so absurd <laughs> that you can't help but laugh at like at like the the how how suspenseful it is. 
Yeah, I don't know to what extent uh, everything is exactly the way it happened uh, on the day. I'm sure they took some liberties, but I think they tried to honor the real story as much as possible. I did read an article about this after we watched it. Okay. And apparently, according to the real Sonny, um, they he felt like they didn't give him enough money, so he wouldn't he wouldn't meet with the screenwriter. After he sold his rights. Right. So he felt like they got some stuff seriously wrong, but they were like, well, hey, we tried. The screener was like, I tried to go and see him several times in prison. Yeah. And he wouldn't meet with me. Um, but it all sounded like more like character based stuff that they got wrong. I think, uh, Maybe the original article, the newspaper article that inspired it or a magazine article yeah. maybe, uh, they had a lot of quotes from the hostages that were involved and the cops and everything. And I think Frank Pearson who wrote it took a lot of uh, the descriptions uh, that uh, people had said of uh, the the real Sonny and incorporated that. He was even described as looking like a young Al Pacino. <laughs> really? Uh, in the That's article. Funny. Yeah, before he was cast. He was described as either Al Pacino or Dustin Hoffman. And at one point, Pacino was going to drop out of being involved with the movie. And then they started to talk to Hoffman and Pacino got jealous and got back in. <laughs> Actually, there were several moments when I thought, oh, he looks like Dustin Hoffman. Yeah. Wasn't Dustin Hoffman also up for The Godfather? Or am I misremembering that? I don't or know. was like in consideration yeah, for it? Yeah, he would have been around that time. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I love the uh, – the title sequence is just a bunch of shots of New York with Amarina, a great song by Elton John playing. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of Elton John at the top of his game, 1975. Yeah. Uh, and then you, f- you realize that it's a song playing on the radio of Sonny's car as they pull up to the bank. And that's the only use of music in the whole movie. There's no score. Oh, wow. I didn't even notice that. There's that no didn't score. even occur to me. There's no score to the movie. That's impressive. I'm even more in love with this movie now because I am really easily manipulated by scores. <laughs> yeah. I really am. Like I, I will think that a movie's really wonderful the first time I see it if the score moves me and then not realize until years later when I see it again that I didn't like it at all. There's so much tension, so much drama, so much variety of pacing, and they don't mm-hmm. do any of that with music. They That's do it with, really interesting. with editing and acting and camera placement. Uh, yeah, Lumet is not as showy as some of his contemporaries like Kubrick or Scorsese, but he really knows where to put the camera mm-hmm. and he knows what to play out as a long take and when to cut quick. It's one of the best edited movies uh, yeah. I've ever seen, I think. I agree. Because when there's those little explosions of violence, then it does like little rapid fire quick cuts after you've been in these long takes for a while. You know, I was I was also thinking that the editing was really impressive uh, when – I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. But the part where uh, he says he wants to speak to his wife, mm-hmm. he tells the um, sergeant or the detective, I want to speak to my wife, bring my wife down here. And it cuts to a woman with two kids and she's talking about Sonny and like how, you know, and it, it's implied that they're married. Uh, and you don't find out until later that he's speaking about somebody else. Yeah. But they did such a brilliant job of cutting to somebody who was once his wife and what you would expect to be his wife uh, to really throw you off the scent of any sort of surprise there later. And that's such a genius move, I thought. Really, it, it, it just – and even seeing it again after so many years, I f- kind of forgot yeah. what the actual surprise of the film is. Yeah. Which is that he's married to a man. And that he's doing this to pay for his partner's sex transition. Yeah. That, that's why he's robbing the bank in the first place. It's incredible. Yeah. And you don't even find this out until over an hour into it. Halfway through the movie, yeah. It's it's so it's so well done and it makes it feel so much more realistic. Like it's such a crazy thing, almost like too crazy for real life. But because they don't focus on it or give you weird hints or like pay too much attention to it when it happens, you're like, of course, like this makes so much sense, you know? The, uh, the other scene that's kind of like that is toward the end when, uh, they pull up the, the limo that, uh, Sonny and Sal and all the hostages are going to go to the airport in. And, uh, so Sonny's kind of like checking it out, making sure it's not booby trapped, booby trapped and everything. And there's the guy who's the driver who's kind of like, and you feel a little bit like this actor's a little over the top, you know, yeah. playing, playing this driver. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, and then they try to swap out the driver for the FBI guy and Sonny's like, no, no, I want that guy. I want that guy. And then he's like, all right, well, when you aim, Aim for white meat. 
And, and then suddenly Sonny catches on of like, okay, cop, get out of here. He realizes that it's an undercover yeah, cop. Yeah. And we weren't told that either. So no. we kind of realize it as Sonny realizes it. Right. And it's so well played. Yes. And you just see, uh, you see the light kind of go off in the actor's eyes playing the driver. And you're like, oh, this guy actually is a good actor. Yeah. Because <laughs> he's playing a cop, playing a character. It's so good. That, that moment is so good. And it surprised me again. Uh, I forgot about that. Me too. Yeah, I totally forgot that he was actually a cop. And so when Sonny realizes it, you realize it. Oh, it's so good. Like, it's just such a great movie. You guys, if you haven't watched it yet, stop listening to this podcast and go watch it and then come back for real. You want to get into some Carlos quotes? Sure. There's probably not that many because I was so into it. Well, you might be surprised. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, As we were sitting down to watch the movie, our cat Bronco was on the couch. (laughs) And you said, it's a dog day afternoon, Kitty, not a cat day afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) And you proceeded to say that about eight more times (laughs) to Bronco. It's not a cat day afternoon. Uh, It wasn't. The title uh, card comes on. It says, this is a true story. It took place in 1972. And you said, I was negative eight years old in 1972. I already did that joke earlier. You said, did you? (laughs) Did you ever look at stuff in an old movie and wonder what landfill it's in now? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I will be honest. That stresses me out really bad. This is going to make me sound like a crazy person, as if I don't already. Hopefully I don't. More so. More so. Uh, a lot of times when I look at watch old old movies or wa- see old photographs, I look at all of the things in it, and I do think, like, what a wasteful world we live in. Like, where did all of this stuff end up? Uh-huh. The same way I feel when I walk into a Target or any department store, and I immediately have a panic attack because I think of all the landfills it's going to end up in. Look at all this crap they're making that nobody <laughs> is ever going to need or use. Right. And where does it go? Well, in New York, it probably go, went to the Fresh Kills landfill in Staten Island. Oh. Uh, at one point, uh, I remember reading that that landfill was uh, higher than the Great Pyramids of Egypt. What? <laughs> Great. I don't know if they're still using that. Yikes. Uh, so now it's just sitting there. My girlfriend at the time was from Staten Island, so I liked to remind her of that. <laughs> <laughs> that, she, that she lived where the the, That's the largest landfill on earth was. Um, then you kept kissing Benny, our dog, and saying, it's a dog day afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> Every day is a dog day afternoon. As Sonny is heading into the bank carrying that big box... <laughs> You're you're like, man, anybody going to a bank with that box is obviously carrying a gun. <laughs> is this the first movie to establish that? <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't think I feel like that's such a trope now, but I can't remember when sure. I first saw it. I think it was probably in some film noirs in the forties. We've okay. probably seen that before. Now I'm sure bank tellers are told Hey, look out for shotgun-shaped boxes. Right. Well, the, the assumption is that it's flowers, right? <laughs> sure. That's what they want you to believe? I guess so. Just some guy but carrying around flowers Carrying around in a giant box. flowers in the middle of the day going into the bank. Yeah. Yeah. Suspicious. Um, when, uh, when their third accomplice is like, I can't do it, Sonny, Carla said, that's me. I'd be like, yeah, let's do this, let's do this. And then we'd pull out the guns and I'd be like, I gotta go. <laughs> do you often chicken out on things like that? I've never d- gone that far. I can only guess. I'm only writing what I would imagine myself okay. to do. <laughs> uh, oh, and then when he said, how am I going to get home? You said, never mind. I'm not that dumb. <laughs> <laughs> so Carla would bail in the bank robbery. But, she would know how to get home. Yeah, She'd I Uber. Wouldn't, I wouldn't try to take the car. Yeah. You'd Uber, right? I'd Uber. I'd walk. Yeah. Um, what else? Oh, I think he says uh, we're going to be in and out in a half a half an hour. Oh, yeah. And you said, a half an hour. This is poorly planned. <laughs> That's uh, a really long time to rob a bank. Or don't you want to do it in like four yes, minutes? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Half an hour. I when guess he, he said that, I was like, what the fuck are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, I don't know what he was planning on getting covered in a half hour. Uh, but he did know of how all the ways they could set the alarms off. So I guess he wasn't worried about the alarms going off maybe. Right. So, uh, when they start getting on him about his language, he's like, I'm a Catholic. Uh, and you said his fatal flaw. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yep. Yeah. Tell me how Catholicism uh, <laughs> is Sunny's fatal flaw. Just it makes you so guilty. You can't really do anything effectively in life. <laughs> <laughs> Because you can't be uh, a heartless criminal. Right. Yeah. Well, it, it is in a way of like his concern for the hostages. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like he's trying to be nice to them and everything. That's part of what yeah. uh, screws him up, right? That's what – see? I, what I said made sense. Okay. <laughs> this is before Carol Kane got her weird voice too. That's what I said? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because – okay. So Al Pacino speaks like a normal person in this film. So it is Carol somewhat, Kane. Somewhat. He yeah. does. Like more more than anything else he's ever done. Yeah. Well, he's not doing his Pacino wah yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. You know? Well, and also he's just delivering the lines in a normal way. Like I feel like later, even more so than his wah thing, was just uh, the way that he would deliver lines does not sound human to me exactly. anymore. Yeah. The the because she's got a great ass. Yeah, it's so like what are it's like he goes through his script and like underlines the Things word to punch. right in the middle of the sentence. <laughs> yeah. You know what Christopher Walken does is he uh he crosses out any stage direction, parenthetical direction to the actor and any punctuation. I've heard that. I've and that, and he also speaks very strangely to me and, sure. and does not do so in the deer hunter. <laughs> um but yeah, Carol Kane Oh, she eventually gets this voice, uh, and she doesn't sound like that in this. No. Like, when did this become her thing? Is what I want to know. I don't know. Uh, anybody listening who can pinpoint the movie or television show that that happened for her in, tweet at us. <laughs> I love her, though. I mean, I think she's hilarious. She's great on Kim but Schmidt. I, but I just always thought that her voice sounded like this. <laughs> and, like, it sounds like a normal person in this right. movie. Uh, you did say something about a half hour into the movie that made me lose faith in you a little bit. Oh, no. Which was... Don't say it out loud. What is it? <laughs> you said, does this take place in New York? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I got really nervous for one second when uh, when I thought that it it was taking place in California for a second. Really? What made you think that? I don't know. I really don't. And I did know that it took place in New York. I Think had just back forgotten. to the title sequence. Yeah, World I know. Trade Center. I know. I know. Statue of Liberty. Well, I wasn't paying attention. I was playing with the animals when okay. that was happening. And then you looked up and all of a sudden you're like, oh, are we in California? Yeah, I couldn't remember for a second. <laughs> there was something that happened on screen. I can't remember what it was. And I was like, oh, is this California? Because uh, California knows how to party. Sure. You said, uh, I'm already crying. I feel so nervous. Oh, yeah. That first time that he goes out to talk to the detective, I was already like had tears in my eyes. But it wasn't because I was sad. I was just like tense, really tense. And it's so good because he goes out and he like the cop points out all of the um, snipers and you get real nervous for him. But then the crowd starts chanting at him and then you're like really moved and excited for him. And you see why he gets so wrapped up and he starts playing it up, playing it up to the crowd. And it's just really it's like it's like drugs. It's like taking drugs. Apparently they had a certain number of extras for the movie, but then they also had just non-extras who were just bystanders who just joined the crowd and started watching. So I guess Lumet talked to his extras instead of like, you really got to like rally these people and, you know, get them to behave as you're behaving. And it didn't take too much work to get the crowd uh, to act the way that he wanted to. Right. Uh, So it's a mix of extras and actual passersby. Um. I think you must have been talking about Pacino because you said he's got a nice head of hair. Oh, yeah. He does. (laughs) (laughs) His hair looks real good in that smelly. This isn't a Carla quote so much, but you notice something that I had never noticed before, which is there's an ad on the counter at the bank that says, change your vacation dreams into a reality. Yeah. Which is such a cool touch because it's like their dreams uh, of escaping to a foreign country are going to become the reality of not getting away with this bank robbery. Uh, I really, yeah, I was paying a lot of attention to the signs that were hanging around. There was also a great shot when Pacino is um, standing at the, at the door uh, yelling out to the street um, to the detective and right behind him is a sign that says deposit here. <laughs> and it's just like, Oh, it's so perfect. Everything's yeah. so good in this movie. 
there's that scene where he starts throwing money to the crowd and oh, yeah. you'll see Pacino throw it and it like it's windy and if like it goes about a foot in front of his face. Right. And then you cut to a shot of the crowd and just a cascade of money yeah, is coming that was down weird. on him. That was okay, there's that's, the flaw. That's the only that's flaw. That's not the flaw that I was thinking of. That's, that's the only flaw. <laughs> that's the only thing that bumped me a little bit when I was watching it. Uh huh. Like the editing didn't match up right there. <laughs> you said, How's the money going that far? Yeah. Right. Um, that scene when they report that it's two homosexuals robbing the bank and Sal says, I'm not a homosexual. <laughs> and you said, poor Sal. <laughs> oh, but in real life he was, I think. John Cazale? Be- no, no. Oh, Sal. I know who John Cazale was. <laughs> he dated Meryl Streep. Oh, there we go. Um, no, uh, yeah, Sal, at least in one of the things that I read was that he and Sonny met at a gay bar. Interesting. That's something I read. I, don't I know did not know that. True, but- wow. Um, at a certain point, uh, Charles Durning, uh, as Moretti, uh, gets taken over by the FBI who start running to the, the negotiations and James Broderick, uh, becomes the chief negotiator. And you said, Matthew Broderick's dad is a dick. Look at those eyebrows. The eyebrows of a trickster. <laughs> <laughs> he's got crazy eyebrows. Yeah. Like he's very scary. <laughs> like he's, the first time he's on screen, you're like, that's the villain. In this movie. Yeah, because like the cops have screwed it up a little bit, but you feel like Durning is empathetic. Yeah. Like he's trying to, you know, get this out with, you know, no loss of life. You know, he's mm-hmm. talking to Sonny as an equal and suddenly the tone shifts when the FBI take over. That was another brilliant part on Pacino's part, I thought, when Broderick first um, starts negotiating and he kicks um, the other guy out of the situation. And you can see Pacino – like you can see this, the status change in, Pati- in Pacino's face. Like he realizes he can't just do what he wants to do anymore. Right. Um, but they still have a shot of uh, Charles Durning in the back uh, during that negotiation. He's eating – uh, and you said, Brian Dennehy is constantly eating in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, his name is Charles Durning. I found out later, not Brian Dennehy, but he is. They're f- I'm sure they're frequently confused for one another. There's like three shots of him eating <laughs> just like in the background. He's like eating an egg McMuffin or something. In my mind, they're always distinct to me because the first thing I knew Charles Durning from was as Doc Hopper in the Muppet movie. Oh. And uh, that he was so memorable to me in that that I always remembered him. And probably the first thing I remember Brian Dennehy from was maybe Cocoon. Oh, right. Cocoon. Is that in your top 100? It's not. I haven't, see, I haven't seen it in years. You love Cocoon? I love it. <laughs> Though there was a reference to Cocoon in one of the movies that's coming up soon. Oh, boy. And that rhymed. You have to speak faster. In general? No, just when you're reading about to, what you're about to say, you like look down and then it's silent. Okay. Is this something to leave in or is, <laughs> <laughs> is this something to edit out because you're giving me notes? Um, it's up to you. Okay. <laughs> you said I'm holding all this tension in my jaw. <laughs> <clears throat> yes. When Lance Hendrickson from the uh, FBI is driving – and uh, Sonny's got the gun pointed to him. He's like, hey, Sonny, can you uh, point the gun at the ceiling? Uh, we might hit a bump. Um, you said, he should have said, well, then don't hit a bump. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't have put my gun up. I would have been like, hey, I'm the one with the gun behind your head. Yeah. That's, that was, that's what happened, though. Sal screwed up. That one little choice in life, putting his gun up. Mm. And he doesn't make it. He doesn't make it. And they uh, and they get sunny in yeah. the end. It doesn't go well. No. That's another thing they do throughout the movies. They cut periodically to the airport. Yeah. <laughs> which kind of like gives you that feeling of hope of like, oh, maybe they're going to get away with this. Of course yeah. they're not. We know, you know, our head says no, but the heart says, yeah, maybe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Dee Dee Allen, by the way, is the editor of this movie. Uh, and uh, she uh, – was one of the great film editors. She also edited The Hustler and Bonnie and Clyde. Oh, okay. And uh, many of the great uh, film editors in history are, are women. From a while ago. Yeah. Thelma Schoonmaker is another one. She edited most of uh, Scorsese's right. movies. You know, In the early days of Hollywood, most editors were women because for some reason it was likened to sewing. S- sewing. Yeah. <laughs> it's a woman's job. Yeah. You know? uh, and in the, uh, the list, when the editors made a – list of the 75 best edited movies she had the most uh, of anyone except for the guy who edited for Hitchcock wow very cool 
Um, so that ending scene where Kazal gets shot. Yeah. Uh, there's a moment when Pacino's being arrested and he's just standing there staring straight forward and then Kazal's body goes past on the stretcher and then he looks up and he sees all of the people that he was holding hostage and they're all like, Oh, thank God you're okay. And they're like hugging each other and comforting each other. And you get this sense uh, that he realizes for the first time of like what he was really doing. Yeah. Because, you know, they become friendly with each other. It feels very like familial almost when they're in the van on the way to the airport. Um, and he's like, everything's going to be okay. We're all going to be okay. We're in this together. You know, like they all move, uh, in one clump from the bank to the van together. And then in that moment, it's like, no, you idiot. You were holding these people hostage. Of course they're not your friends. Right. You know, and like it dawns on him and then he sees Kazal's body and he just starts crying and it is like the best moment. It, yeah. It's really moving. They do get Stockholm syndrome like pretty quickly of like, and that's one thing that the movie does well of like jump cutting ahead mm -hmm. to see of like how quickly the, a human being gets used to something is like, this is just like, this is my life right now. Right. You know, I'm a hostage, you know, so like the ladies are, you know, joking around at times. Well, he's, uh, teaching one of them how to, and I don't know what the term is, but when you're in the army and you have the rifle thing, where you spin the rifle around. Right. I was thinking more of just, well, well, let me finish real quick, yeah. which is that he was like teaching one of the ladies how to spin the rifle around. So she had the gun in her hands, a loaded rifle, a loaded <laughs> rifle. And they're just like laughing and he's just teaching her how to do it. And you just realize like, Oh, this is a totally fucked situation. <laughs> like nobody has any real sense of what to do here. And that's what makes it so compelling is because again, it's not black and it's not white. It's like on so many other levels. Yeah, that actress, by the way, Marsha Jean Kurtz, uh, who also has a great face, uh, she turns up in a lot of movies in the 70s, and she's in the Spike Lee movie Inside Man, which is also about a bank robbery, and he cast her specifically as an homage to this movie and gave her the same name as her character in uh, Dog Day Afternoon. Really? Yeah. Okay, so I was looking up some of the other cast, and um, I'm sorry I didn't write down his name, but the pizza guy, the guy who delivers pizzas, uh -huh. he was another pizza delivery guy in something later on, and it was clearly like it was the same exact title for the character like pizza guy or something right and uh it was clearly an homage later in his career to that part so filmmakers love this movie so much that they uh, always want to pay tribute to it i guess so yeah which is really neat yeah when do you think pacino went from like such naturalistic acting to being over the top because you know you look at him in the godfather movies serpico scarecrow panic in needle park like Mm -hmm. uh, all of his roles in the 70s. Uh, I mean, he's got power and volume when he needs it, but he's so like quiet and subdued at times and has so much, so many levels. You know, I always think of it as Scarface is like the first time that he really like started chewing the scenery a lot. Yeah. I, yeah, I'm not sure because I never saw Scarface, but I believe you from the clips that I've seen. It seems yeah. really over the top and silly. Is that on your top 100? It's not. Good. Say hello, my little friend. <laughs> uh, but isn't scent of a scent of a woman really credited with that? Yeah, first that's like kind real... of yeah, and that's what he won the Oscar for, which when he had never won before, which yeah. is amazing uh, because he's so hammy in that performance. He's still pretty good, right? <laughs> it's a cheesy movie, uh, but he's pretty good in it. But he's very hammy. And uh, I mean, he's made some other good movies like Heat. He's good in, but he's kind of over the top in Heat. Yeah, too. And uh, Glengarry Glenn Ross, he's really good in as well. But that that's a movie that's kind of dependent on everyone chewing the scenery mm -hmm, to a certain mm -hmm. extent. I just rewatched Frankie and Johnny, which is a movie oh, with yeah. him and Michelle Pfeiffer from 1991. He gives a really kind of like quiet and moving performance in, in that movie. So he was still capable of it. But now he feels like a cartoon. Mm -hmm. And it feels like maybe he just doesn't have directors anymore that can rein him in and collaborate well, with him. He's he's quite good in uh, Angels in America, which was the As HBO. Roy Cohn. Yeah. yeah. And, but, it, but that's a very theatrical piece. And everybody is, is, you know, it feels larger than life, all of the performances in that. So it seems to fit in well with what he's doing. Um, yeah, I don't know. I wish he did more stuff like this, though. <laughs> Hopefully he'll still have that one role 
in his twilight years that gets him back to the uh, to the old Pacino. Yeah. Um, because he is so good. He's probably, I don't know. He's probably just has so many people around him who think he's so great. And, you know, you walk around in your Al Pacino, you're not really getting any real criticism to make you self-aware probably anymore. Right. I say this like I have any idea what (laughs) it's like to be Al Pacino. I can only guess. I think for any actor also who's just rich and legendary of like you lose so and it is the same way for filmmakers too. Like later in their careers, they have very little contact with regular people and have very little sense of how real people behave. Maybe. Yeah. I, yeah, I would, I would guess it would be important to be able to move in the world as if you are a real person in order to act like a real person, <laughs> a normal person. But I think this movie is kind of method acting at its best. Uh, cause it feels like improvisational and dangerous, mm-hmm. uh, and the long takes definitely help to see an actor's performance play out, uh, on screen. Um, that one other scene that has a lot of improv in it is when the, the cops try to go in through the back and Sonny catches them, he gets off one shot and suddenly all hell breaks loose. And then he and Charles Durning end up on the street kind of yelling over each other. Mm-hmm. That was a scene that Lumet just let, uh, he used three cameras, just let them roll and shot both of them. Uh, cause they're kind of talking over each other. They can't really hear each other that well. And they're both kind of yelling at each other and it feels so real. And that whole thing was improvised. Yeah. As well. Uh, I forgot to mention one of my very favorite moments, uh, which is when Jenny's on the phone, uh, who's Carol Kane <laughs> in the beginning, right after they know that the cops know about what's going on. And her husband calls and Pacino answers thinking it's the cops. And he's like, what? And then he's like, oh, it's for you. And she picks up. She's like, hello. And it's her husband. And she looks at Pacino and she goes, he wants to know when you're going to be finished. (laughs) (laughs) And then they go away for a minute to do something else. And they come back to her on the phone and she's like, well, just cook what's ever in the refrigerator. (laughs) It's so funny. Yeah. Well, I think Uh, it's those little human touches that make it feel so real and therefore so funny. Yeah. And uh, it's just – it's very New York too. Like everybody speaks their – Or (laughs) California. Or California. (laughs) Kidding. I'm going to say New York because everybody's just speaking their mind at all times and just calling it uh, the way they see it. Yeah, I, I think, uh, again, as a, a lesson in comedic heightening, it, it's so great. Okay, so tell me what the flaw is. Well, I just feel like it does, there's a, a in the last third, it does start to drag a little bit, hmm. which I think is part of, like, maybe the natural pacing of how this goes, because it's so fast-paced in the first half hour of just like getting into the bank and uh, you know and then the cops getting involved and everything heightening 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 you can't maintain that pace for an entire two-hour movie but i feel like he's got a long phone call with leon right his lover a phone call with his ex-wife a long conversation with his mother outside and then him giving his last will and testament. So it's kind of like those four scenes back to back that have a similar kind of slower pace to them. And I feel like it drags down the energy of the movie a little bit. I see what you mean, but I think that I think that each of those scenes is so vital to us understanding who he is and how he came to this point in his life. Yeah. You know, so the, the conversation with Leon, um, which is, you know, he's clearly in love with this man who's clearly not in love with him anymore and kind of the abusive relationship that they had, you know, come, come to be a part of. And Sonny is there to, it seems like to win him back. Like he's trying to get money for Leon's operation so that Leon will love him again is what it feels like. And then calling Angela, uh, and then you understand of like (laughs) this idea of why he, uh, probably left her in the first place because she's just so relentlessly annoying and (laughs) doesn't listen to one word that he says the whole time and is very self-centered and talking about how she loves him. And he's like, well, if you loved me, why wouldn't you come down here to see me? And she's like, ah, I'm afraid they're going to shoot me. Like she's a nutcase. And so you understand like, oh, okay. He, his, the, the relationships in his life are not, um, 
are not positive at all. And then you see him with his mother and it's the same thing. And you understand why he ended up with a woman like Angela because his mother doesn't listen to him. He's trying they're pretty to, t- similar. they're very similar and he's trying to, you know, connect with his mother and she's just on and on and on, uh, and not listening to him. And, and it, I love that scene too, because you can get this feeling of like, you know, like this kid who's embarrassed that his mom shows up to the party or something. Uh, and he's just trying to push her out. And so you understand like why, why a, a person who seems like a kind person would get to this point in their life where they make this ridiculous decision mm. and feel like they have to commit to it, you know? And then I do like, I like the will scene. It, it is a, that part was true. That was the actual will that he left um for his family. Everything that Pacino says in that scene is true. And, and I like the idea of him verbalizing how he did love Angela and how she was the only woman he ever loved and how his mother didn't understand him. I don't know. I just think it's like very, it, it fills in all the gaps for me as to how did this person get to this point in their life? Carla, that's a very impassioned defense for those four scenes. <laughs> and I think you're right. They do all serve a purpose. I'm just thinking about pacing for the movie and mm-hmm. it's a minor quibble for what mm-hmm. is an excellent movie. And I think this probably would move up to maybe the forties or fifties on my okay. list. So, All right. That's you know, about half. Splitting, up the, there. splitting the difference between that and number one. I mean, the, the, the other side to that, to <clears throat> that is, you know, with John Cazale's character, all we know about him is that he's been in prison and he refuses to go back. And like with that one little line of dialogue that he says, that tells me everything about who he is. Like he is not going to prison. Right. So you believe that he could kill someone the moment that he says that. He feels dangerous. Yes. Yeah. I was worried that having not seen it in a while that the Chris Sarandon part would be uh, as Leon um, would be the part that would feel a little dated. Um, and it really doesn't. Like it feels like it was pretty sensitively handled. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only thing it's kind of a concession is that any gay character in the 70s and 80s would always have their hand to their chest. Right, right. You know? So that's a little cliched. But uh, other than that, it feels fairly grounded and, and sensitive. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was Oscar nominated for this movie. It was his first movie. Oh, wow. So That's that, really cool. That's very rare. Uh, can we hit on one more quick thing? Yeah. Um, which is this idea of the the media being there and capturing it um, and how it really feels like a precursor to reality television in a way. Absolutely. Uh, except that we get to see um, uh, the the audience, if you will, the crowd respond to – uh, the information as they're, as it's revealed. So for example, uh, when, when Sonny first comes out and he starts cheering with the crowd, they really get on his side, you know, and then when they find out that he's gay, like they turn on him mm-hmm. and they start making fun of him, you know, uh, it's, it's really fascinating that part of it. And, and the idea of like when the woman, when, uh, the bank teller, what's her, she, they, they call her the mouth in the movie. What's her name? <laughs> Do you remember? No. Okay. The, the main bank lady. The mouth. She, the mouth. She goes out and she's like, gives a short interview and she comes back in and she's like, ladies, I just gave an interview. <laughs> uh, and you really get the sense of like, oh, people on TV, this is a really big deal. And kind of the fascination with that. It, it feels like the early stages of, of what's now become the Kardashians. <laughs> yeah. Well, it captures that mob mentality yeah. so well. Another thing that I thought was all too timely was when uh, he releases the black security guard because he has asthma and mm-hmm. then it's immediately assumed that he's one of the robbers. And yes. He gets like tackled. Yes. Uh, that unfortunately is still way too true. Yeah. Today. I thought that too. Yeah. Really interesting. Other odds and ends. Uh <laughs> I like the one teller has the line, uh, well, I'm a Christian and my ears are not garbage cans. <laughs> when the other ladies are like cursing around her, yeah. that might be her only line of the movie. But uh, I think that's it's so uh, indicative of how much thought he put into like every little character yeah. in the movie. Yep. Uh, but then after – it, that pace slows down a bit. The tension just ratchet up, ratchets up for that last 10 minutes. And it's so unbelievably tense. Yeah. Uh, and, and we don't know what's going to happen. And you don't know that the cop has the gun in the side of the door until right. the very last moment. Yeah. And he pulls it out, shoots Sal. Uh, they pounce on Sonny and it's all done that fast. You know, it's mm. over in five seconds. Ooh. Yeah. Dog Day Afternoon, guys. 
Uh, a plus. Carla gives it an A plus. Wow, A plus for uh, A plus for for the classic reasoning behind an A plus. <laughs> Well, so far, you've been alliterative with all of your grades. Uh, A plus for awesome pants. <laughs> Which is also the initials for Al Pacino. Oh. Al Pacino, awesome pants. Uh, is there a scene from this movie that you'd like to duplicate for Khaki Theater? I think we should do uh, the scene between Pacino, between Sonny and his wife, Angela, uh, on the phone. Okay. When he calls her right after he's spoken to Leon. Okay. Well, one thing I did want mean to say about the uh, phone calls uh-huh. is that they're they're long takes, and Lumet shot them all. He shot them back to back in long takes at the end of what was already a long day. So Pacino was just exhausted, oh. and the, he used the second take on both of them, both oh, wow. phone calls. Uh, so you can see that Pacino was just really drained. Yeah. For both of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is the other another key element to method acting is method directing. <laughs> Just like torturing your actors right. in the right way to get the maximum out of them. Great. All right. Let's do it. Hello? <gasps> Sonny? Oh, my God. Sonny, is that you? Angie, what uh, What are you doing? Oh, my what? God. I was just watching you on the television, and I swear to God, I was like, it can't be him. It can't be my Sonny. I mean, maybe he did it, but he didn't really do it. Okay. Well, yeah, it's it's me. Sorry, to, sorry Angie, to disappoint you. Oh, oh my God. Sonny, what are you thinking? What are you doing? I got to get this money for Leon. What? Oh, Sonny, what did I ever do to you? Did I never, uh, did, did I ever turn you out of my bed? Did I ever say you couldn't touch me or something? I mean, did I really drive you into the arms of a man? Yeah, you kind of did, Angie. Oh, is it, I mean, I know I, I let myself get a little fat, but, but a little I, fat. But I love you, you, you Sonny. I you're love you. You're fat like Samwise Gamgee fat. <laughs> What are we going to do with our kids? I mean, Sonny. Oh, we'll raise them. A bank robber. A bank robber. Robber. A robber robs robbers. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry I drove you to do this, Sonny. Well, you did. It's totally your fault. I just can't even breathe. I need a glass of water. Well, get a glass of water then. What are you going to do, Sonny? You got to give yourself up. You got to do uh, it. We're dealing with that now. And it's going to, it's going to be, we're going to, it's going to be all right. Don't oh worry. Oh my God. Oh, I love you, Sonny. I really do. And if I. Will I, you shut the fuck up? I, shut the fuck up. <laughs> Stop laughing at me. When I'm not laughing. At me. I'm not laughing at you. Attica. Attica. No, my name's Angela. Attica. Angela. Tell him to put that guns Angela. down. Angela. Tell him to put that guns down. Sonny, I want to come down there, but I'm afraid they're going to shoot me, I'm going to hang up, Angie. Don't hang up on me. I love I'm you, Sonny. I'm sorry. I'm hanging I'm up. I'm sorry. Hang up, Sam. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> good. Really good. Good. good that good. was fun. Um, yeah, I know that's not the scene where he yells Attica, but, uh, oh, we just, didn't even talk about that. No, that's probably the most iconic line of the movie. That's why we didn't need to talk about it. We don't need to talk it. about it. Well, the New Yorker just did an article about the real Attica prison riot, oh. uh, which was very interesting. And there was so much stuff I did not I should read that. know about it. Yeah. So readers look it up. New Yorker. Yep. Uh, here's what, I don't know if you read this either. Uh, one of the great ironic details about the making of this movie was that, yeah, so, uh, the bank robbery did not work to pay for Leon's, uh, sex change. Uh, Sonny went to jail. Uh, however, he was paid for the rights to his story right. to make this movie. He also got 1% of the film's profits in that money. Paid, paid for the for real Leon, Leon yeah. sex change. I did read that. It's fascinating. Isn't it? That's really incredible. Yeah. <laughs> and then he ended up dying, I think, of AIDS in the 80s. Leon did. Yeah. His name wasn't Leon. It was something else that I can't remember. But, um, and then Sonny ended up passing away. Um, Pretty recently, right? Like 2000s. Somewhere. Okay. Um, yeah. And, uh, Angela. And her two kids lived on welfare, was what the movie told us, at least. Oh, right? So yikes. sad. Yeah. Tough. But and Sal died. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we've effectively spoiled anything that we could possibly spoil. I hope people watched it before they listened to for this. For this movie. Yeah. You've seen Dog Day Afternoon. 
Yeah, it's so funny because I didn't see it until I think I was in college when I was like going back and trying to watch movies that I had heard the performances were really incredible because yeah. I was studying acting and I was trying to be a, a theater nerd. Um, but I never, my pa- I don't think my, I don't even know if my parents ever saw this movie. That might be one of the reasons why it's not higher on my list is I didn't necessarily grow up with it. I don't think I saw it till I was in my twenties myself. Mm-hmm. So like I'd already seen a lot of kind of, uh, gritty seventies, great acting movies, you know, um, there's so many good movies from the, from the seventies. Uh, but Dog Day Afternoon, Oscar nominated for best picture, four of the five movies nominated that year are on Craigslist. Wow. And 1974, four of the five from that year are also on Craigslist. So wow. eight, at a two year period, eight of 10 movies are in my top 100. 70s was a good decade for film. That's when the studios held the, gave the keys over to the directors. Yeah. Let them make whatever the fuck they wanted to make. And then the directors got greedy. Went too far with it. Then and the blockbuster took over. Too many Indiana Jones movies. <laughs> <laughs> Crystal Skull was what pushed it over the top. Yeah. All right. Thanks for this one. This one was really. I don't know if it's as funny listening to this one as the, some of the other podcasts, but because I'm so into this movie, but uh, I really enjoyed this movie. Good. I love it. I'm glad. Always glad to uh, to have us agree on something for it to be an A plus. Yay. So next week, we're on to number 95. Ooh. And, uh, this is a 1995 <laughs> movie, uh-huh. uh, by David Fincher. Okay. And, uh, uh this, oh, this one's a little is. scary and a little uh, creepy. Seven. The movie is seven. Uh, Why are you reacting that way? It's so scary. Yeah? You've seen it? Yeah. I saw this in high school. Maybe once since then. Maybe in college too. Okay. I used to be in love with Kevin Spacey. <laughs> well, this movie would disabuse you of that notion <laughs> real quick because yeah. he, he shaves his he's finger so fucking tips creepy off. In this. Yeah, he's very creepy. Oh, this is like the one with all the, oh, the fat person who like gets real gross. Yeah, there's a fat person who gets real gross. <laughs> <laughs> You, so you could take I your pass on this person one. person twice in this, and I just wanted to be fair. She calls herself fat in Dog Day Afternoon. Okay. Um, I don't think people are and, fat. And then the fat person in Seven epitomizes gluttony. Yes, so, exactly. So, you know, by I definition, they are. Sure they must be fat. People didn't think I was being cruel for no reason. Okay. Like when you're making fun of Carney Wilson. Okay. And uh, we're also going to have our first guest next week. Oh, who? It's going to be the man who married us. What? A <laughs> uh, God. <laughs> well, of course, God first. God is present in all of our podcasts. Uh-huh. Uh, but next week, we're going to have Bob Dassey joining Bob us. Bob Dassey. Uh, my improv buddy who uh, we've played together for many years, and he presided over the ceremony that joined me and the woman across the table from me in holy matrimony. And we share a bank account now. Yeah. You and Bob? Yep. Okay. And uh, – Bob, I, I've already told him that uh, to watch Seven. He's very excited. He likes this movie a oh, lot. This is going to be fun. Cause, so we can gang up on you for this one. Because, yeah, because Bob likes to aggravate me. So this will be funny. Okay. So in seven days, get ready for Seven. Seven. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening to Craigslist. The list is an absolute good. The list is life. <laughs>